Anonymous Was a Woman was recorded on the traditional lands of the Wurundjeri people of the Kulin Nation. We recognise that they have been telling stories on this land for millennia. We also acknowledge that this land was stolen, never ceded, and recognise the Wurundjeri people's living culture, knowledge and struggle in this region. Hello and welcome back to Anonymous Was a Woman. But don't get too excited, this is not season two yet. It's coming, it's coming. Astrid and I are working, she's reading a lot, I'm reading a little bit and trying to catch up. But when I say don't get too excited, at the same time, while the season hasn't started yet, we have the most ridiculously special treat for you. So strap in, get ready for this first special episode of Anonymous Was a Woman. My name is Jamila Rizvi and I am joined as ever by my co-host Astrid Edwards. We're meeting today at what is a really complex, weird and not mostly wonderful time for the world. We have a global pandemic on our hands. The year began with Australia facing absolutely horrific and horrendous bushfires. And then more recently, we have seen the power of the Black Lives Matter movement come to the fore with the murder of George Floyd and the protests that have followed, not just in the States, but here in Australia as well. It has prompted conversations, important conversations in almost every medium and almost every industry about the representation of black, indigenous and people of colour. And I think today we're going to talk about that representation when it comes to what we read. This conversation might be a little bit uncomfortable, but I think it's a conversation worth having. Astrid, you've been doing a reading audit and I don't know what that is. I have been doing a reading audit and this has been confronting for me. A reading audit, you know, you can make what, there's no definition of it. You can make of it what you want. It comes from the idea of librarians who keep great libraries, whether they're public libraries or in schools, they look at what's on their shelves and they make sure that representation is there, not only in the stories, but in the voices and the people and the authors that are appear on the shelves. From that, you then have lots of reading challenges that are all over social media. Some of them are really fantastic where, you know, across a year or across a month, you are asked to uh, pick certain types of books written by certain types of authors or about certain types of themes in a way to diversify your own reading. And I guess I have interpreted that in my mind um, and I'm not sure if other people have done that. So I don't mean to be stealing this, but because I am involved in two bookish podcasts because I teach writing at a university in Australia and because I basically put myself out in the world as a bibliophile, you know, someone who reads a lot, I actually feel like I can't do that with any kind of integrity unless I am transparent and accountable and I point out my own failings. So, you know, I've been thinking about it and I think that what we choose to read, it's the same kind of choice that we make in terms of you know, what newspapers we choose to engage with or where we like to get our news or what radio station we pick or what musicians or TV shows that we choose to engage with, right? It's a choice, but that choice that we have not only impacts ourselves and how we understand the world and where we get our information from, but it also has economic impacts for 
those news outlets or for those artists. And we're obviously here to talk about books. And I feel a responsibility to point out my own failings. And I don't know, I think we might all be better readers if we all do that together. In the first season of this podcast, we talked about reading as the ultimate act of empathy, that you were very much putting yourself into someone else's world, into someone else's thought processes, into someone else's experiences. And to me, reading widely and reading the work of Black, Indigenous people of colour is necessary to take action that is anti-racist. It is the first step. The first step is to listen to other people. And if you're going to be listening, why not listen to these beautifully articulate, well-read people? (laughs) The ones who are authors who create stunning stories and also works of nonfiction that will challenge you and make you think and overwhelm you. And you're right, Astrid, our reading, you know, from high school days, from primary school days, what our parents buy us, what we have on the school curriculum, our reading is very much shaped for us. Our habits are set early and we tend to follow them through into adulthood. Astrid, what were your results? Okay, so from January to June 2020, I read 89 books. Now, to be clear, I track these all on Goodreads and I do post what I read every month on Instagram. So in that sense, I've always been very transparent, but I've never actually gone back and counted. Of those 89 books, 75% are from female authors and 25% from male. I'm pretty happy with that. 67% of the books I read were published in Australia by Australian authors and 33% are international. I'm okay with that. 60% were fiction, 33% were nonfiction and 7% were poetry, which surprises me. I thought I was kind of 50-50 with fiction, nonfiction. And then we get to race. 10% of the books that I read were by Indigenous authors from Australia. 8% were by black authors. 17% were by people of colour, which means that the remaining 65% were by white people. And I'm quite ashamed. So in June 2020, Rennie Edo Lodge became the first black British author to top the charts since they started book charts in the United Kingdom. Now, Why I'm No Longer Talking to White People About Race was first published in 2017 and it took until June 2020 for her to hit the charts. And that's great that everybody is now buying her book and reading her book. And that obviously comes with great financial benefits for her as the author. But also that in itself is an indictment on a lot of people's reading habits. And Edda Lodge herself has talked about this in public and bringing it to the Australian context. Anita Heiss, who of course is uh, an Australian Indigenous writer, actually had a piece in The Guardian in June basically saying that the surge of sales in Indigenous books in Australia is heartening But it's not enough. And I do recommend listeners look up Anita's article. She links to reading lists and black book challenges that she has created in the past. But she also reminds us that there is a huge emotional toll of white people, and I am a white person, suddenly coming to these works and these books and this knowledge for essentially the first time en masse. You know, that in itself is a problem too. And I think we should just recognize that finding knowledge in books is fantastic, but also we probably should have been reading these books all along. I suspect your reading audit would stack up pretty well against the average Australian. Maybe. I suspect you're doing better than the average person. And I don't say that to make you feel 
better and to say that means it's all fine. Not at all. I think just because other people are doing worse doesn't mean that we can just be comfortable. That's in the same way that you can say, uh, look, my neighbor next door is like full on like shouts at people in the street racist. So clearly I'm okay. That logic doesn't hold. But I think the fact that you are such a prolific and also inclusive reader of books still feels like your data, let's say, isn't quite up to what you want it to be, probably says something about the rest of us who didn't go and count up all the books they're reading because I don't keep track of it as well as you do and I don't think I could find them all. You know what? I love Goodreads. It is my nerdy little haven and heaven. Um, I do have two other interesting stats for you. 10% of the books that I read were from queer authors and 3% were works in translation. Now, 3% is a really low figure for reading works in translation. And the reason why translation matters is because if we're looking to decolonize our bookshelves and if we are looking to diversify our reading, obviously we need to read in the language that we are fluent in. And for the people listening to our podcast, that's going to be English. But only reading books originally written in English is leaving out like 80% of humanity. So we all need to read books written in whatever language they were written originally and then read the translation. So works in translation is actually a figure I want to increase as well. Astrid, thank you so much for bringing this reading audit concept to the table for this podcast. We would encourage anyone listening who keeps better track of what they read than I do to do the work to go and do the count and to see where your reading habits stack up and maybe make a commitment to yourself that you will push harder to read more books by Black, Indigenous and people of colour. Now, this is a podcast about books written by women, about women characters and about women as readers. We stand by that. We will not be changing that. But we will do better, and this is a commitment from us as a podcast to do better, in making sure that the women whose books we're reading and the characters that those books are about and the audiences consuming those books, we will push harder when it comes to racial diversity and we will look to compensate in this next season for the reading habits that we've had our whole lives those white socialized reading habits that all of us have had. We are going to try and push back hard against it. So get ready for some absolutely brilliant reading in the season to come. And we are going to kick off with some fabulous recommendations from some of our favorite women authors of color here in Australia. Jan Fran is a broadcaster and social media star and for those who are as big a fan of her work as I am, then you'll be thrilled to know that she is also working on a book. Of Middle Eastern Appearance will be published by Hachette next year. So the book is set in Western Sydney in the late 90s, early 2000s, in the lead up to the Cronulla riots, which was a race riot that happened in 2005 on Cronulla Beach, where thousands of people showed up drunk in a lot of instances and basically started beating up and abusing anyone that wasn't white. Um, The target of the aggression was principally Lebanese people. Um, And I know this because I remember very vividly some of the signage that was held up at the time. Um, Signs reading, fuck off Lebs. 
Um, and no to bully, incidentally, was another one. It's sort of important to examine the lead up to the Cronulla riots because I don't think that these things come out of nowhere. I think usually there's there's quite a lead up to events like this. And if you don't really live either in Cronulla and or the Western suburbs, and if you're not particularly from those communities, I think it might be a little bit shocking to see that level of violence again, just seemingly come out of nowhere. Um, but there was, a, there was a lot of build-up in the lead-up to the Cronulla riots, particularly around Lebanese people, Lebanese youths, Lebanese gangs. All of this stuff that we see happening in Melbourne at the moment around young Sudanese gangs, I'm doing air quotes here for people that obviously you can't see me because it's a podcast, but all of this stuff that's, happened in, that's happening in Melbourne now actually happened in Sydney 20 years ago. The same rhetoric around fear of the city, the same rhetoric around integration, you know, Lebanese people can't integrate, you know, three Lebanese boys standing outside the mall were a gang, but three white boys were just white boys waiting to be picked up by their mum. So there was a lot of eyes, I think, on the community and a lot of really heavy slander by the press. And I think when you kind of, when you grow up in that space, you take a lot of that on, you know, you feel to some extent a a certain degree of shame belonging to these communities. You feel like you have to be the best person that you can ever be because you want people to see a different side of actually what that community might be like. I very rarely read books and thought, oh, the character's going through what I'm going through. The closest book, which I remember almost detail by detail to this day is looking for Alibrandi. Um, by Melina Marchetta, and she was an Italian girl. And her story was nothing like mine, really, but it was the closest kind of representation that I had, you know, this this wog chick who didn't feel like she belonged anywhere, who was caught between two worlds, you know, who was questioning ideas around identity and belonging. Uh, so that was really the only book that I felt sort of spoke to, to me as a person and, and crucially me as an Australian. And look, it's, it's, it's somewhat an indictment on our literary landscape that I can't really name very many books after that. And that book was published, you know, 20, 30 years ago. But even, even small details like the way she sort of described her grandmother and the way she described um, her hair and the way that she sort of described the way that she didn't fit in with the high school that she went to and all the kind of white girls, you know, it was very relatable to me in that sense. But in many other senses, it was not relatable at all, but it was the closest thing. I'm very buoyed by the fact that race has taken um, slightly more prominence now than what it, well, what it did a year, two years, five years, definitely 10 years ago. We're all talking about it so much more and we're talking about it, I think, in ways that are far more nuanced, which I, which I find really promising. I think what we're seeing now is non-white communities in Australia with, one, the agency. So I, I, I'll, just to talk about the Lebanese community specifically, it's a, it's a relatively newish community here in, in Australia. So you're looking at 60s, 70s, 80s, um, the vast majority would have come out. And I think only now that you have second and third and maybe fourth gen, you're starting to, you have a bit more agency, you have a bit more money, you have a bit more voice, and now you have the platforms. You have social media, you didn't have social media, you didn't even have social media five years ago in the way that it exists now, let alone 10. And so what we're hearing now are these conversations that would have been spoken about 
you know, at two for one cocktail hour among friends 10, 20 years ago, but now everybody's hearing them. Now there's a platform to get them to everybody. So the conversation is not particularly new. The way it's being had in the mainstream, I think, is new. And the way that I, certain ideas are reaching certain people, I think, is new. And I would count myself on both ends. I'm one of those people that's trying to get our ideas out there. But I'm also one of those people that's on the receiving end now of ideas that I hadn't really thought of prior, particularly ideas that have come out of the Black Lives Matter movement um, and ideas that have been talked about by Indigenous Australians for decades. The book that I would most like white Australians and or any other Australian to read is Talking Up to the White Woman by Aileen Morton Robinson. If you consider yourself any kind of a feminist in Australia, you need to read this book. If you consider yourself anyone that is interested in race and the, and the way in which race plays out within feminism in Australia, then you need to read this book. And this book was written 20 years ago, two decades ago it was written. And so the 20th anniversary edition comes out this year, which makes it, I mean, it's always the perfect time to read it, but this year in particular is a really good time to read it because there's a foreword that's been written by Dr. Morton Robinson where she reflects on the book and on the last 20 years. But it's a really, really important book. It really sort of changed the way that I would look at race, I guess, which is rather than examining race through this sort of lens of racial discrimination, it's almost like you need to turn the gaze inward and start examining it around racial privilege. And that was that was a real sort of moment of like, I was, you know, when Oprah talks about those aha moments, where like it's like when something clicks and the light bulb goes off and you, you're like, oh, right. And this is a perspective that's been out for 20 years and I'm only just catching up now. We are all only just catching up now. Aileen did a, a, a panel at a, um, at a writers' festival last year, late last year, to talk about this book specifically. And she said, she said it was the first time that she had been invited to a mainstream feminist writers' festival to talk about talking up to the white woman 20 years after it had been written. So it just goes to show that these ideas are out there. We're not listening to them. And I would really love it if we started to. Yes, this is a book that I want white women to read. I would say even more pressingly, it's actually a book that I want women of colour to read because as a woman of colour myself, I know that we can be both victims of and perpetrators of racism. We are not immune to being perpetrators of racism just because of our colour. And so it's really important to understand perspectives of Indigenous Australians um, in this space, whether you are white or not. Keep your eyes and ears peeled for a copy of of Middle Eastern Appearance by Jan Fran, which will be published by Hachette next year. Leah Purcell is a multi-award winning and self-made author, playwright, actor, director, filmmaker, producer, screenwriter and showrunner. If there is a kind of writing to do, this woman has done it. You will probably know her best as the author of The Drover's Wife. My mother only had a, a grade four education, being a black woman in this country. So she was 14 when she left in grade four and went out to work, servitude, uh, work, and um, but she but she did read. And so I do remember her reading. Um, I wasn't too encouraged. It was actually the fact that I loved storytelling and I loved listening to stories that were orally 
handed down to me through my uncles and aunts, my grandmother when she could speak, my grandfather. And I was just one of those kids that asked questions. Uh, and thank goodness I had a brain that retained a lot of those stories. So that, so, but for me, when I look at it that way, it's just who our family was. And if we were back in, in ancient times and there were robberies, we would be the storytellers. We would be the story holders of our, of our clan. And I learned to tell a story um, through my aunties and uncles, whether they be um, horrific stories of what they experienced or comedy. And I, and, and they, I had an uncle and an aunt that could put Whoopi Goldberg and, bless him, um, Robin Williams to shame and deliver in a punchline. So I was gifted with the oral gift, and that's and that's Blackfellow way of telling stories. I believe when anything is not written, and I, this is just not Indigenous. I'm I'm a big I'm a big um, believer in that. There's many voices in this country. We're a multicultural country, and we need to hear from the people that have lived the lives, the experience, and that's anybody and everybody. And let them make some money off their own stories, you know, because that's theirs. I believe we should be telling our own stories. Um, we should be owning our own stories uh, because you can't beat that personal experience. I might not have experienced being a stolen generation's child, but my grandmother did. And I sat at her feet when I was five years old and she, <clears throat> and she told those stories. Um, I witnessed my mother. I call it the lost generation because they were trying to fit into white society, yet they were closed off from their Aboriginal culture where they couldn't learn language, they couldn't practice cultural, they couldn't even get together in some cases. You know, we lived in the township and the rest of our family lived out on, on the mission. We had to get permission from a superintendent to go see them, you know. So, so my mother was that, I call it that lost generation where she didn't quite know where she sat, and I and I and I and I observed that, and I think that that's that that's my right to tell those stories, and to be ownership. It's about ownership and owning, and being respectful to that, and understanding cultural practices, because there's a lot of time when we go as as Indigenous people, when white people or non-Indigenous people want to write, and we go, mate, if you don't toe the line, it's not you that's going to get in trouble. It's me. We've got so much weight on our shoulders because we are representing, and we're such a diverse community that we have, to, we have to be diligent in what we give and what we don't give. And I just think right now it's about our voices being heard. There's a book that called Is That You, Ruthie? And then um, the author's follow-up book is Bittersweet. And this is only Ruthie Hegarty. So she, we are tribally related. And I didn't know, I, I, I kind of knew because they'd come and see my nana, um, but my partner Bain found it in a, you know, it was on sale it was something to do with the Sherberg dormitory, which my great-grandmother worked at. My mother um, also spent time there, not as, and they and they call them inmates, not so much as an inmate, but because that was her nan and they'd go down there and sleep with, you know, spend the weekend or spend some time with nan and, and pop at the dormitory. So Annie Ruthie, but Annie Ruthie was an inmate uh, from a very young age with her mother. And, and, and I read it and just, I was going to the Gold Coast to do this big flash, Beastmasters, living in the penthouse, you know, and here I am reading this story about 
essence of my family history and just howled all the way. But it's a great book and there's comedy and there's guts and there's determination. So that's only Ruthie Hegarty, her two books. And they're about that. They're, they're, I love autobiographicals or memoirs. I'm, I'm right into that because I like the history. And I like reading that. And I think I think if, if non-Indigenous people want to know the Indigenous experience, it's best to read the memoirs, the autobiographies, because you can't deny a person their story. That's it. You cannot deny them because then they don't exist. And you can either agree with it or not, but it's their story and they're giving you something personal. So there was those two books by Annie Ruthie Hegarty. And the other one was Don't Take Your Love to Town by Dr. Ruby Langford Guinnaby. Now, I actually um, co-adapted this with Eamon Flack and we did a performance of this novel <laughs> at, uh, at Belvoir Street. It was a two-hour monologue. I wonder if I make the Guinness Book of Records. I have to look it up. Anyway, um, so and that is another awesome book where it goes from the early 1930s as a 10-year-old girl that she is and, and farmed out to, to be a maid for an older woman um, and looked after her children. And you go through her journey right up to 2011 until she passed away. So you're getting, it's almost like a history lesson from the early 1930s and a little bit earlier because she talks about her family, but it's all the way through the hardships that this woman has went through. But what's beautiful, it's funny. Once again, with Ani Ruthie and with Ani Ruby, it's, yes, it's heartbreaking, but um, but there's funny, they're gutsy women. They, they, they've got mouths. They, they ain't afraid to break their backs on men's work, you know, and that's what I loved about them. They're ballsy, you know, they've got some guts. And then the final one was Many Lifetimes. Now, this book will break your heart. So you've got to be strong to get in there and read it. And that author was Arnie Aubrey Evans. And she was also a Goongari woman, which is my grandmother's country. And I wrote the Ford for that. But, whoa, it's, 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 it's full on. But if you want to know, if you want to understand why Aboriginal people have the fight that they need for equality to be heard, they're the books that you need to read. And then you'll understand You'll understand the, why the voice, and then you understand why there is so much sorrow. Please keep your eyes peeled for the feature film adaptation of The Drover's Wife and make sure you read the book before watching the film because otherwise, what are you doing here with us? Next up is Jessie Two, a newcomer on the Australian literary scene. She is the author of A Lonely Girl is a Dangerous Thing. I wrote this book really to question, to like kind of narrativize the questions that I had struggled with uh, in my whole adult life as a young Asian female. And for, for people to respond to that has been really, really lovely been so lovely I guess it makes me feel less lonely <laughs> that you know I haven't seen myself on the page um, as an Asian woman my whole life so to have you know white women for instance come up to me and say I see myself in this book has been oh it's just given me so much fortitude and strength to know that you know as a fiction writer you have power in this world still so Jenna is a classical violinist who's also now as a young girl struggling to struggling with her competing desires to be I suppose validated by men because she she's a I guess a typical woman in this world a typical heterosexual woman who believes that having some sort of clout or social 
kudos in society requires one to appeal to men on a romantic or sexual level. And so, um, and like, I think as an Asian woman, I've always had stereotypes placed upon me, um, especially by, I guess, white men who, you know, they see me and they see my face and they automatically put their idea of what an Asian woman is onto me. And I think Jenna is someone who's trying to combat all those ideas. And um, in a way, she, she also ends up sort of damaging herself in her relentless pursuit of trying to win the affections of the people around her. And at the same time, she's also trying to say, hey, I want to live my life according to my own terms but like being unable to because you know literally in this world today it's still very hard for a woman to express herself and pursue her own wants and needs on her own terms i've been reading a lot of old stuff that i used to read maybe in the last couple of years i found that very comforting so a lot of essay collections i'm kind of really obsessed with essay collections um especially by feminists obviously um (laughs) so a lot of um Olivia Lang and uh, Deborah Levy and Rebecca Solnit, Gia Tolentino, people who have been able to use their lives as a proxy for examining the way in which women live through their lives in today's modern society. It's been very, very fruitful and like so soul nourishing. I feel like as a society in a couple of in the last couple of years, we've coalesced into this into the sense that feminism it, and it's you know amazing breach into the mainstream as it should has been much very much narrow and it hasn't embraced intersectionality and I think that's definitely sort of the natural step that we should all as a a country move towards because um, any kind of feminism that excludes trans people or disabled people or people of color you know any kind of other marginalized group is not a feminism that I would want to be part of at the moment I'm reading a book called Kim ji Born 1982 it's by Cho Nam Ju and it's uh, a Korean South Korean author it's sensational in the way in which Asian women have responded to the sort of very basic story ostensibly basic story of a young mother struggling to find herself raising a young family in South Korea and the sort of everyday misogyny and sexism that she faces I think if if you are not someone who lives in a a colored body you would find it deeply confronting just to know and be aware that in so many countries across the world women still face horrifying marginalization that we I feel like especially if you are white in Australia you're not privy to or you're not aware of and it's such a lonely place to be when you don't fit into the criteria of the typical trajectories in which women are supposedly meant to aspire towards the wife the mother the perfect daughter all those all those roles are like so constricted um, and women who decide that they don't want to follow those models of female happiness are still ostracized in a very horrible way, I feel. A Lonely Girl is a Dangerous Thing is available now via Alan and Unwin. You can grab it at any of your favourite bookshops. Alice Pung has said of Jessie too that she is a truly bold and audacious new voice. We couldn't agree more. 
My absolute favourite part of an episode of Anonymous Was a Woman is when Astrid gives us some reading lists. Astrid, hit us with a fiction and a non-fiction by a black, indigenous or woman of colour. I am very excited about this, Jamila. So as I keep telling you and as you keep ignoring, I love fantasy, science fiction and speculative fiction. And Mm. Octavia Butler is one of America's greatest speculative fiction writers. Now, Octavia Butler, a black American woman, wrote Kindred back in the late 70s. Kindred is a beautiful standalone work of speculative fiction. It is set just after the civil rights movement in America. We have a couple, a black woman and a white man, who are navigating you know, post-civil rights America. And the speculative fiction element is that this woman is continually and repeatedly taken back in time to one of her ancestors. And the twist, of course, and we learn this quite early, is that her ancestor is a white plantation owner and he owns slaves. And she is forced to interact with her own ancestor who happens to be a slave owner. And so this is a beautiful work of fiction, speculative fiction, that explores the origins of not only civil rights, but all of the intergenerational traumas and true horrors that come from slavery in America. And a nonfiction. So staying in America, I've just read We Were Eight Years in Power by Ta-Nehisi Coates. We Were Eight Years in Power is actually based on a series of eight essays that were written for The Atlantic by Coates in each year of former President Obama's presidency. Now, the book not only brings those eight essays together, but includes uh, essentially eight essays about those essays and how they have stood up over time. So this is a black man exploring race in America. And I learned so much. And I also feel like I'm still coming down from the emotional roller coaster that is this work of nonfiction. Because Now, I don't mean to simplify here. It's an incredibly complex argument, but essentially Coates is saying the presidency of a black man in America is now being paid for with the Trump presidency. And it's a really confronting view of politics and race and how they are continuing to play out, you know, in this era of Black Lives Matter. And I really recommend We Wait Years in Power by Tana Hasi Coates. What about you, Jamila? Well, I'm going to kick off with a book by someone you mentioned earlier in our podcast, Astrid, and that is Rennie Edo Lodge. And the book is, of course, Why I'm No Longer Talking to White People About Race. So the title is clearly provocative and it was first used as the title for a blog post that I hate the word viral, but this went viral, right, in 2014. And I think while the title is provocative, Edo Lodge isn't saying she wants white people to disengage from this conversation. Not at all. In the same way that Toni Morrison said that she was writing for black people primarily and not white people, she didn't mean white people couldn't read her work. She was all for that, but this wasn't for them. She wasn't writing to them, if that makes sense. So what I love about this book is the unashamed anger in its pages and it's beautifully expressed anger. I wish I was that eloquent when I was rageful. Edo Lodge explores this idea of constantly putting the pressure on people of colour to explain how they feel and what's going on with race to white people. I think most people of colour, particularly black and First Nations people, know that white people generally don't like talking about race. It's a 
subject you stay away from at dinner parties. It's not polite. And when white people do go into the discussion, it's framed as a debate. Whereas for people of colour, this is who you are. This is the body that you live in every day and the consequences of that and the discrimination that come simply from you being in the world isn't a discussion topic for a university lecture. It's your entire being. I think by saying she's no longer talking about race, Edo Lodge in this book basically says you better start talking about it. I will leave the reading to the rest of you, but there were so many parts of it that really struck me. In particular, she speaks about the idea of who is working class and she's speaking in in a British context, but she talks about who is the working class person and that still in the United Kingdom, we have this idea of like, I think she says it's a white man in a flat cap, right? When really, if we took the most demonstrative example of a working class person in the UK right now, it's a black woman with a pram, right? It is not a white guy in a flat cap. So she pushes at stereotypes. She does not make her book comfortable reading for people who aren't black. And I think that is a tremendous thing. And I highly recommend it. I add my recommendation to that, Jamila. And I would like to say that, you know, I'm a white person. And until the last couple of months, white people didn't even like being referred to as white people. So, you know, this is a conversation that needs to be had. One of the things I always noticed just as a little kid when I was reading books was that when you would read a story about a white person, they'd never tell you. Do you know what I mean? Like the character was never described as white, whereas as soon as it was a person of colour, there'd be, you know, latte-coloured skimmed coffee skin and, you know, or black as night or all these horrible descriptions that are just ridiculous. And it was like, yeah, because we have to make a point of skin colour when it's not white. White gets to be the norm in literature. And it shouldn't be. Do you have a fiction recommendation for us? I do. So speaking of white, Astrid, uh, The White Girl by Tony Birch. I have to add this, which is not necessarily relevant on race, but apparently Tony Birch wrote the draft for this novel in eight weeks. Oh my goodness. Every author everywhere hates you. Tony Birch, that is so unfair. How do you do that? I mean, this novel is a masterpiece. It is nominated for the Miles Franklin for 2020. Like, I cannot believe you could write the draft for that in in less than two months. But focusing on, you know, the plot, it revolves around a First Nations woman called Odette Brown. And she's been a resident since she was a little girl in a fictitious country town called Deanne. Um, She cares for her granddaughter, Sissy. Sissy was conceived by rape, a white man uh, who who was Odette's boss. Um, Odette was employed as a domestic servant. A white man rapes uh, Sissy's mother and her mother becomes so traumatised by that rape and unable to be a mum the way she would like to be that she flees to the city. And so Sissy, who is the child of that rape, is the white girl who is referred to in the title. But to be honest, the story is mostly about Odette, the grandmother. I don't want to give too much of the plot away, so I'm not going to talk too much um, on plot, but it is a really stunning book about the legacy of colonisation. I think it's also about dignity, like the quiet dignity of First Nations people in the face of enormous discrimination, violence and hardship. And I think it's also about courage and resistance 
and the different ways courage and resistance can look that courage and resistance aren't always fighting back violently that they're done in different ways particularly when we're talking about women it's also quite an allegory sort of tale to be honest there's a real kind of good and evil sort of setup to the entire story I'm trying really hard not to give it away but it is beautiful and incredibly tender and I just I I adored this book I read it in about two sittings because I I just had to know what was going to happen an interesting fact about Tony Birch Jamila did you know that Tony writes so well well Tony writes so well full stop but Tony writes so well about women and children and the concerns of women and children that he is one of only two male authors that were asked to contribute to Choice Words, which was a recent anthology in Australia about abortion. That is a very cool fact. And it also somehow doesn't surprise me having read a bit of Tony Birch's work. Astrid, thank you for bringing this tremendous suggestion for a special edition of the podcast. I have enjoyed reading for it. I have enjoyed listening to the wonderful recommendations of the women authors who joined us. And I am so looking forward to season two of Anonymous Was a Woman, where we will very much bring to you authors who are as diverse as they are brilliant. Astrid, I'm looking forward to it. I cannot wait. 